they both have been holding out on us. But now they've been exposed. <laughs> and so we'll be calling on them. And also, um, Sister Dolores Reed blessed us this morning and took us back. Amen. We thank you so much for that and uh, to John and uh, the entire worship team. We're so thankful for how you bless us each and every Sunday. Um, would you pray with me? I think we can never have too much of that. Father, we thank you uh, for this blessed day and for your love and kindness and for your amazing grace. For it is amazing how you pour out your love on us and how, Lord God, you always look beyond our faults and see our needs. And so now, Lord, my prayer is that it would be all of you, none of me, that you would increase as I decrease, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in thy sight. Lord, you are my strength. You are my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I remember it like it was yesterday. It sticks out in my mind. It's a memory that I have. It's one of the most embarrassing days of my life. It was a winter of 1977. I know I'm aging myself, but I was a brand new seventh grader at Bolter, some of this word, this phrase is going to sound foreign to some of you, junior high. <laughs> it was junior high back then. I was a brand new seventh grader at Bolter. Uh, I was excited because I had heard so many stories about what junior high life would be like, and I had finally made it to junior high. I was living the dream, Sister Martha. I was on cloud nine. It was an exciting time uh, because I had successfully made the transition from elementary school to junior high. And for the first time in my life, I would be able to participate in sports at school. I played football. I played basketball. Uh, I ran track. Uh, and so then, in that first year, in the winter of that year, we had just about wrapped up our first football season, and uh, we were preparing to start and have our first basketball game. And I was slated to start, as this word is going to sound far into some of you too, as one of the wings. They don't call them wings anymore. Some of y'all know about that. I see you grinning. It's forward now, but back then, it was a wing, and I was slated to be one of the starting wings on the seventh grade basketball team at Bolter Junior High. I had always, at, to, up to this point, had always been an okay student, nothing spectacular, but I'd always kind of made, made my way through and done what I was supposed to do, and sometimes barely made it, and sometimes didn't. Not, I didn't, never didn't. I always did, but I was just, you know, one of those kind of average students. Uh, but I must admit that I did have some lapses in concentration. That's what I'll just call it, 
along the way. You know, I, I, I had some of those, as, as many of you, you may not admit it, but some of you had some of those same lapses along the way. Yeah, this was in the days before there was what's known today as no pass, no play. They didn't have that back then. Uh, it was not, it was not, it, the rule had not been created uh, as yet, but I had been warned by my dad that if I didn't keep my grades and citizenship up that he wouldn't allow me to play any sports. So we had no pass, no play in my house before the rule came into existence. It was always something, Brother Kimmy, that I had to live by. And up to this point, I had pretty much made my way. I had pretty much done okay. But it was a few days now before our first game, first game, basketball season. I'm excited, slated to be one of the starting wings for the junior high, seventh grade basketball team at Bolter Junior High. And just a few days before this first game, first game progress reports came out. Yeah. I think some of you see where I'm going with this. Uh, and, 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 and the teacher sent a note home to my parents saying to them that my current grade in her class was a D and that I needed to make some adjustments and some improvements in some areas. Well, when my dad got the report, he lost it as he had been known to do from time to time for various reasons when I had these, these lapses in, in concentration. <laughs> he lost it when he got this, this note, and he declared that there would be no more sports until I got my grades straightened out and got my act together. This was, of course, devastating. It was devastating for me because uh, the opening game against Hall Junior High was only a couple of days away, and I was going to be the starting wing on the seventh grade team at both the junior high. So I did what any rational seventh grader would do. I went to mama. You know, you've done it before, you've done it, Daddy, you know, you've done it. I went to Mama, and I, and I, and I pled my case, Cynthia, before, before my mom. I went to Mama, I said, Mom, this is not right. Little Daddy said I can't play sports anymore. She sympathized with me, and she didn't agree with the punishment. She told me, and it probably was not a good idea, but she told me, go ahead and play. Just don't tell your daddy. <laughs> Just don't let him know. But go ahead. Go ahead and play. So here we are, my teammates, coaches, and myself, sitting in the gym at Hall Junior High, packed with people, girls and all sitting in the stands. We're, we're, we're just minutes before we are to take the floor for warm-ups when, yep, you guessed it, in walks my dad. And when he walked in the gym, I noticed him from my seat. And at that moment, Brother John, I wished with everything within me that I could just disappear. I wished I could get up and run away. I wished I could hide. But I could not do any of those things, although I wished I could do all three at one time. I locked eyes with him. 
He locked eyes with me, and he made his way on a beeline to where I was sitting in the stands. And he walked up to me in front of all those people, girls included, sitting around just waiting on the game. A few minutes, coaches are expecting me to take the floor as one of the starting wings on the seventh grade basketball team at Bolton Junior High. My dad walks up to me, and he absolutely goes off. Some of y'all don't know what I'm talking about because you didn't have a daddy like that. But my daddy would go off on you, and he didn't care who was what. So in front of all those people, he goes off out loud. He didn't say, when we get home, you go, you in trouble. He, he, he took care of it right there. He just absolutely went off on me. He told me to get up, take that uniform off, and go to the car. You're not playing. All my friends watching, I'm just so embarrassed. I'm so, so embarrassed. It was, to that point, the absolute worst day of my life. It was the worst day. I couldn't understand it. It didn't make sense to me. After all, some of my other teammates were terrible students. And some of them spent many days in the principal's office, always in trouble. And here I am, the first time anything like this had happened. And I'm being embarrassed like this. I couldn't understand it. It didn't make sense. It didn't make sense at the time. And it wasn't until I had kids of my own many years later that it occurred to me that what had happened at Hog that day felt like wrath and anger, and it was, but it was born out of something else. I didn't realize until later that this wrath was actually a demonstration of what we call tough love. It was a demonstration. It was an outpouring. I didn't, I didn't realize until I had little ones of my own and I had to do some of the same things to them. I, I, never, I never embarrassed them in public like that, but I, I understood the reason why then, years later, that it was his tough love that led him. That, that's, what, that's where this wrath, this anger came from. He, he had a desire for me to do better and to be successful in life. In today's text from Romans 1, 18 through 32, we'll take a look at one of the not-so-pleasant attributes of God, his wrath. It's not pleasant, but the more we understand God's wrath, the more we'll be able to appreciate God's love. And so today I don't want to talk to you about what we call tough love because that doesn't do justice to who God is. The story I shared with you helps to paint the picture, but it falls way short of what God's wrath is all about. The story I shared with you is really not an adequate illustration of God's wrath because God's wrath is born not out of tough love but out of perfect love. The kind of love that most of us will never be able to understand. God's perfect, infallible, inerrant love is where his wrath is, is what his wrath is born out of. Up to this point, in chapter 1 
of the book of Romans, everything has been very good and very pleasant. You'll recall that Paul closes his greeting in verse 7 of chapter 1 by saying, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace, good stuff, pleasant stuff, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to commend them for their famous faith. You remember that? He commends the Roman believers for their faith is known all over the Roman Empire, all over the world. This is good stuff. It's pleasant stuff, pleasantries. He talks about being uh, mutually encouraged by one another. Good stuff. He's, he says at the end of his greeting to them, he says to them, I am eager to come to Rome and to preach the gospel to you. All good stuff. All warm and fuzzy and pleasant things that, that make you feel good. He, he says, I have a strong desire and I'm eager to come and preach the gospel. This, this good news. This good news. I'm, I'm eager to come. Then, beginning in verse 18, he pauses his discussion on righteousness that he will later pick up in chapter 3, verse 21. He pauses it here to discuss man's sinfulness. Not so pleasant. Kind of a downer. He takes a pause from all this good stuff, and he, he, he talks about man's sinfulness. Paul's tone here, though, uh, is not unlike my father that day. Not, he, Paul's tone is not to scold. It's not to scold, but to simply say that the reality is, is that the state of humanity is this and that all are guilty. Nobody can say that I'm not guilty of some of the things that Paul is getting ready to discuss. His tone is not to scold. His tone is to simply state what reality is, and reality is, is that, uh, sorry to, to be the bearer of bad news, but there, there's a lot more bad news to come, by the way, but all of us in this room are guilty of the things that Paul is getting ready to talk about. As we so then examine the passage, first thing we see in this passage, beginning in verse 18, is the revelation of God's wrath. The revelation of God's wrath. Look at what it says in the first part of verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. God's wrath is, is relevant and present right now, today. Let's talk about what this wrath is. The definition of wrath, the wrath as we know it, wrath as we know it is anger and retributory punishment for an offense or a crime. That is what we see wrath as, it is, is as, and it's wrath as we know it, and wrath as it ex is expressed through us human beings. But God's wrath is different than ours. God's wrath is different than what I experienced at Hall Junior High. God's Although it was, it was born out of love, it was born out of concern, it was born out of, of, of a desire to see one, me succeed, uh, God's wrath goes deeper than that. God's wrath is defined this way, not just as anger, not just as punishment, 
for an offense or a crime, but divine chastisement. Holy, not just anger, but holy anger exhibited in punishment. Holy anger. It's the Greek word, it's the Greek word orge, 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 orge. It's the Greek word orge, and it, and it means anger or indignation. This is what God's wrath is. Unlike man, God's wrath or his anger is not a spontaneous emotional outburst, but the holy God's necessary response to sin. What kind of God would he be if he did not respond with consequences to our sin? It's something that has to flow from a, from a holy God. He, he cannot stand, he cannot put up with, he cannot tolerate sin. It's a personal quality without which God would cease to be fully righteous and his love would degenerate into sentimentality. We have to know that God's wrath is, is his response. to what we do in our human nature that angers him. Because, not so much unlike what happened that day to me, God has this desire to see all of us come to the knowledge of him and all of us come to a saving faith and all of us uh, uh, that we are able to spend eternity in his presence. He has a desire for us to, to be successful, whatever that means, while we're here on this planet, while we're here in this life. He, Jesus says that, that he has come that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly, and there's no way to do that if we disobey God and anger him. So it is a response from God as it relates to our sins. There are some examples in Scripture of God's wrath. We see it throughout Scripture. This is not the only place where God's wrath is mentioned. We see actual, we see actual evidence of God pouring down his wrath on humanity throughout the Old Testament and even mentioned in the Old Testament. We, get, we talk about getting to Revelation and how uh, that wrath is played out. A lot of Revelation deals with the wrath of God. But you can look at passages like Exodus chapter 32 where Moses has gone up to the mountain to spend some time with God. And the people have gotten impatient. Anybody ever been impatient? People have gotten impatient and Moses is taking too long. And the people say to Aaron, Aaron, Moses been up there too long. He's not coming back. We need to make us a God because our God, Moses ain't coming back. We've got this goal. Let's make us a golden calf. And they do, and they begin to have a party. And, and, and you can use another word to describe what they were having. And Moses comes down, and God's wrath is kindled against those stiff-necked people. Anybody here know what stiff-neckedness is all about? And watch this. His wrath is kindled, but Moses pleads the people's case to God, and God decides not to extend his wrath to them because of Moses' prayer 
for them, but his wrath was present that day. You can look at passages like the flood that happens in Genesis 6 through 7 when God is fed up with the wickedness of mankind. And he sends the flood to wipe out the entire population, both man and beast. Everything that is breathing on the face of the earth, God sends a flood to wipe everything out, and he chooses Noah and his family to survive his wrath and to repopulate the earth. And so Noah builds this ark, having never seen rain. Noah builds this ark while he's being talked about. Noah builds this ark while people are ridiculing him. Noah builds this ark because God told him it's going to rain. Because I'm fed up, I'm angry, I'm angry, my wrath is about to be poured out. Build an ark because your family is going to be the ones responsible for repopulating. Build an ark, fill it with animals, fill it with your family, and, 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 and secure yourself in it because rain is coming. And so God's wrath is poured out on the earth by way of a flood. We see it in examples like Genesis 19 uh, and what happens in Sodom and Gomorrah. God is angry at the wickedness and evil that's happening in this place. And God decides to rain down fire and brimstone and destroy this place. His wrath is poured out. We see it in Exodus 14. And Pharaoh and his army are hot on the trail of Moses and the Israelites. And they have survived all the plagues in Egypt, and God has allowed them to survive. He sent plague after plague after plague, and he's allowed them to survive it. He's allowed them, the, the, the soldiers, to make it Pharaoh and his army, and they have once again went against God and decided to not just let the people of Israel go, but to follow them into the wilderness to recapture them, to, to, to recapture them and to overtake them, and so they're hot on the trail. The Israelites are, are up against the Red Sea, seemingly with nowhere to go, and the Lord, you know the story parts the Red Sea and allows them to walk through on dry land but the soldiers are behind them and we see the wrath of God poured out for the very last time on Pharaoh and his army as they attempt to follow the Israelites into the Red Sea and the way that God has parted for them and the seas close. In fact God says to them Moses, tell them to look at them because today you'll see them for the very last time. And sure enough, God's wrath is poured out and they are destroyed. We see God's wrath and it is present even today. But there is what we know as, and, and so for the most part, God's wrath is primarily eschatological. It, 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 it's, it's what's dealing with things that will happen in the future. For, for instance, in Revelations uh, 6 through 19, it talks about how God's wrath will be poured out. Uh, but but it, it, although it is mostly for future, it is present and it is a reality today. If you don't believe it, just defy God. And most of us do, and we've seen his wrath. We've seen God and how he, he, he extends his punishment even to us when we do things that we shouldn't do. So it is a reality today. His wrath 
is revealed in verse 18, the first part of that. But then we look at not just is his wrath revealed, what is the object of God's wrath? The object of God's wrath. It's in the second part of that verse. Here it is. It says, for the first part says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Who are, who's the object? The object is all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Those are the ones who's God, who God's wrath is meant for as it relates to Paul's writing here. Ungodliness. What does that mean? Ungodliness. It means uh, someone who has absolutely no desire to have a relationship with God. Absolutely no desire. Defies God. Turns their back on God. No desire to know him in an intimate way. No desire. Then it says unrighteousness. This, this is a different unrighteousness than Paul deals with in other places. This talks about, first one talks about the relationship uh, with God. This one talks about the relationship with each other. How do we treat each other? How do we, do we, uh, do, how do we interact with each other? How do we, do we treat our neighbors as ourselves? Do we follow the golden rule? Are we like the Samaritan that was on the road uh, that, where the man fell victim to thieves that was traveling from J uh, Jerusalem down to Jericho? Are, are we like him? Do, do we take time out of our day to help someone? If we don't, we fall into this category, the object of God's wrath. Then he says this, men who suppress the truth. What does that mean? It means to hold down or to hold back. To suppress means to hold down or to hold back. It's people who know the truth, but they suppress it and cling to their sins instead of clinging to the Lord. Truth cannot be changed, my brothers and sisters, but it can be held down or stifled. You, you know what? You can't, there, is, there is, truth cannot, by definition, truth cannot be changed. It is truth. It, ha it always has been truth. It always will be truth. It's not relative. It's, a, it's not what you want it to be. It's not whatever makes you happy. It's not whatever floats your boat. It's not whatever tickles your fancy. It's not whatever mood you're in today. It's not any of that. Truth is truth, and truth cannot ever be changed. But truth can be suppressed. R.A. Knox says this about truth. Wickedness denies truth its full scope. Wickedness denies truth its full scope. It's when men love their sin more than they love God. Therefore, they seek to suppress the truth. They know about God because we're going to see in a minute everybody knows about God whether you choose to acknowledge it and admit it or not. Paul is going to point out in a minute various reasons why everybody knows about God. But knowing about him, but choosing to suppress the truth about God. At the same time, seeking to go deeper in their sins. John 3.19 says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil, suppressing the truth. The Bible says in Psalms 
14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Only the fool can say that. But even the fool knows that he's lying. <laughs> right? The fool can say it, but even the fool has to admit that there is a God. And Paul now will launch into the reason why the fool, if he says that, is lying. Because in this next passage, beginning in verse, in verse next text, beginning in verse 19, he begins to point out to us why there is no excuse. Everybody should know. Uh, everybody knows that God is real. Verse 19 says this. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. God is not hiding from any of us. He has made his presence known. When it says what can be known, it implies that there is a great deal which may not be known about God. Right? There, there, there's a lot of things that we don't know about God. Some, God has revealed to us those things he wants us to know about him. But there are some things that we don't know. The being of God may be apprehended, but it cannot be comprehended. Finite understandings cannot perfectly know an infinite being. We are finite. Can't perfectly know him, but thank God he has given us access to enough about him that it should bring about deep worship and praise. Whatever it is that God has revealed to us about himself should do something on the inside of us that causes us to bow down and worship him, to lift our hands in praise, to acknowledge that he's sovereign, that he's almighty, that he's all-powerful, that he's ever-present, that he knows everything, that he is everywhere, that he is the creator of everything, it should cause something to happen on the inside of us. God has revealed to us what he wants us to know about himself. So then the question comes, how has God revealed himself? How has he revealed himself? Look at verse, look at verse 20. Verse 20 says this, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that so they are without excuse. How has he revealed it? It, it, it says it right there. He's revealed it in, in, in those ways. Uh, his invisible attributes revealed in creation. That's how he revealed it. Uh, first thing, first way is through his eternal power. It's in the text, eternal power. His eternal power describes what he's done. And then through his divine nature, which describes who he is. He's revealed it in these two ways, and it plays itself out as we observe creation and nature. Here's what the psalmist says in Psalms 19, 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun. God has revealed 
who he is by his handiwork. If you just look at creation, you, 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 there, there is no way that anybody in their right mind can deny the existence of a creator. If you just look at how things work, if you just look at the earth we live on, the earth is the only planet circling our sun on which life as we know it could and does exist. The earth is an average of 93 million miles from the sun. If our planet traveled much faster, it's 584 million mile long journey around the sun, its orbit would become much larger and it would move farther away from the sun, resulting in average temperatures that are too cold for life to exist. God did that. If it traveled much slower in its orbit, the earth would move closer to the sun, resulting in average temperatures that are too high for life to exist. God did that. It's no accident. God is the author of that. The sun provides the earth with energy estimated over 239 trillion horsepower. That's about 35,000 horsepower for each of earth's residents. God did that. Our moon, look at the moon. Our moon is unusually large, but it's just the right size to aid life on earth. It's not an accident. As a masterpiece of design, it shouts God's creation. If the moon was much larger or nearer to the earth, the huge tides that would result would overflow onto the lowlands and erode the, the mountains. God did that. If the earth was not tilted on a 23-degree axis, but rather was on a 90-degree angle in reference to the sun, we would not have four seasons. And without seasons, life would soon not be able to exist on earth. God did that. The poles would lie in eternal twilight, and water vapor from the oceans would be carried by the wind toward both the north and the south, freezing when it moved close enough to the poles. Just a little change in the perspective of the universe would render the earth unsuitable to support life. Anybody with a rational mind has to come to the conclusion that this ain't no accident. This is God's handiwork and God reveals himself through his handiwork. You look at the animal kingdom and how they do things. You know, I, I often share, I've shared before that one of my favorite TV channels to watch is the Discovery Channel. And it's because I'm always amazed at how animals live. They, it, it, it can't be a mistake that we have millions upon millions of species of animals that exist in the world. They're not humans, and they don't have the wisdom that we have, the intelligence that we have, but they know how to survive. They know how to procreate. They know all of these things. They, 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 they have certain defense systems. No matter what animal you find, that animal, I don't care if it's a cockroach, that's an insect, but it has a defense system. They only come out at night 
Every now and then they get brave, especially when you spray. They'll come out during the day. Some of y'all laughing because you had them or have them now. And some of y'all are like, I don't know nothing about that. I've never seen that. Well, I just stopped by to tell you they do come out at night. <laughs> the fit to have, have wings. If you try to kill them and you catch, you catch them while they're watching you, they'll fly away, they'll run away. Every creature that God has created has a, I don't care if you're talking about a dog or a sheep or a lamb or a lion who's the king of the jungle, every one of them, you know, they say that the lion has no natural enemies. I've watched the Discovery Channel, and I think that may be a mistake. Because I've seen some videos where crocodiles attack lions took them out. It's the natural cycle of life that God created. It has to be the handiwork of an all-powerful and an all-wise God. So, if we look at all of that, Paul says, we have no excuse. No excuse. But then, the other thing I see is this. Since, since, since we have no excuse in God's wrath, Paul says, is, is, is revealed here. Then, then what are the reasons for God's wrath? What are the reasons for his wrath? Let's look at it. It's, it's in verses 21 through 20, 23. They spell out the reasons for God's wrath. First of all, it says four. Four looks back to what he just said. He talks about how no one has any excuse so four says, uh, for that reason, uh, although they knew God, they did not honor him. That's first reason for God's wrath is no honor. No honor. It, it, it means that they refuse to magnify and exalt God as God. No honor happens when men fail to glorify God by giving him first place in their lives. Then it goes on and says, not only was there no honor. They failed to give thanks. They, 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 there was no honor. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish, foolish hearts were darkened. Not only is there no honor, there was ungratefulness. Ungratefulness. It's a bad thing to have. It's a bad trait to have. It's a bad uh, attribute to have is ungratefulness. God wants us to be thankful. And if we're not thankful, we are, we are subjected oftentimes to his wrath. Whatever that looks like. It, whatever, it may not look like fire and brimstone raining down. It may not look like that. But, but, but we are subjected when we're not thankful to his wrath. Uh, and then 22, claiming. Here, these are the reasons. Claiming to be wise, it says, claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, of the, of the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Claimed, they claimed to be wise, but their actions proved them to be fools. Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, claiming to be wise. It's, it's different to say. There's a difference. There's a distinction between what we say and what we do. We can say anything, all right? 
but, but, but it's likely that my actions are going to, to validate who I really am rather than what I say. And you can claim, you can make any claim you want to. You can claim to be wise, but if your actions doesn't prove and bear that out, then really what happened is, is that rather than being wise, you've proven yourself to not be wise but to be a fool. Many of us know people that are like that. You can talk the talk. <laughs> right? It's a totally different thing to walk the walk. Right? I can claim I'm as smart and I'm as wise, and, but if I do dumb things, like go to the basketball game when my daddy told me I couldn't play, <laughs> it means I'm a fool. <laughs> And I'm going to tell you right now, I feel like a fool riding home in that truck that day because it was a long ride from Broadway to 1105 North Inglewood. It was a long ride. I thought my life was absolutely over. And you know how you are when you're in the seventh grade. You think you know everything. So I said, I said I was wise, but really I was a fool. And many of us have that same testimony that we, we have to be careful about that. And so Paul says, claiming to be wise, but prove, they were proved to be fools. Then, then the other, one, other reason, 23, 23, it says this, and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So here, here's, here's, here's the deal. Mankind is, has been created to be a religious creature. We have been created with a hole in our soul. We've been created with a void that has to be filled with something. It has to, we have to have something in our lives to worship. And if we don't, if we don't choose to worship God, the almighty God, we will exchange God for something else. Paul says they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for false God. I know you're saying, I don't have any false gods. False gods were in biblical times. We don't have false gods today. Well, I, 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 I'd submit to you that we have many <laughs> false gods. We have to be careful. They, they exchanged the worship of, a, of an almighty God for false gods that resembled mortal men, even animals and images and all of that. Because, because honestly, the reality is, is that we have a desire on the inside of us, a yearning on the inside of us that has to be filled. And many of us, I'm talking about myself right now, I'm not talking about you. Nobody, nobody else here was like this, just me. Searched for years trying to fill that void and, and fill up that hole. Anybody else here be honest enough to say it was me? Okay, there's two or three of you. The rest of y'all lying. <laughs> Nobody here was born saved. And when you came out of the womb until, and, and, and when you were old enough to know what things were, you had a desire to fill the void. And in what, you didn't, you didn't none, nobody got saved at one day old. If you did, you didn't know what you were doing. 
So up until the time that you gave the Lord your heart, there was a search. Some of us took longer than others. There was a search. Some are still searching today. You know, there's a difference in being in church and being in Christ. Some folks come in church every now. I'm, I'm, I'm making a departure from the notes right now because I need to talk to y'all for a minute. Some people come in church every Sunday. There's a difference in being in church and being in Christ. And there are folks sitting next to you right now, I'm not looking at nobody, that still have a hole in the soul that they're searching for something to fill it. And there are some folks that are going to leave here today and go try to search for something to fill that void when you just left the place that's telling you and preaching to you about the only thing that's able to fill that void. There's a whole lot of folks outside the church that are like that. Paul says, when we exchange what we, what we, when we exchange our affection, our love, our worship for the immortal God for something else, it angers God. And this is the reason, one of the reasons for his wrath. So then we have the reasons for God's wrath in 21 through 23. But in 24 through 30, 32, now let me just warn you. It's getting, getting ready to get real tough right around in here. Getting ready to get real. Somebody's going to have to get up, may have to go to the bathroom, or, you know, it's going to be wiggling. Don't, don't look at your neighbor if they start wiggling, because it's getting ready to get a little touchy. But in 24 through 32, Paul gives us then the consequences of God's wrath. What are the consequences? Since, since, since we have these reasons and God's wrath is present today, what are some of the consequences? Look at how it starts. It starts with therefore. Therefore, it looks back to the reasons just mentioned and signals the coming consequences. It looks back to the reasons we just talked about, and it signals that there are some consequences up ahead. I'm getting ready to reveal to you. Uh, so what it says is this. It says, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Here's the consequence. God gave them up. That's the consequence. You don't ever want to be in that place where God gives, gives you up. God gave them up. Now, what it does not mean, though, is that God gave up on them. He gave them up, but he, he did not give up on them. God will give you up, but he never gives up on you. There is, as long as we have breath in our lungs, there's always hope. There's always another chance because we serve a God of not just second chances, but third, fourth. Somebody should have said amen right there. Fifth, because you've had some of these. Sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth chance. He, we, he will give you up, but he never gives up on you. There's evidence in Scripture. There's ample biblical evidence to suggest that oftentimes the goal of God's wrath is therapeutic. God's wrath, he wants it to be therapeutic for us. In other, words, God, in other words, God gives people over so that they will hopefully experience the ruin of their sin and call out to him for salvation. What does he give them up to? What does he give them up to? Well, it begins in verse 24. Verse 24 says one of the things he gives them up to is lust of their heart. 
He gives them up to lust of their heart. He gives them up to impurity and dishonoring their bodies. He gives them up to that. Uh, and then in 26 through 27, uh, he, gives an, he gives an example of the dishonorable passions that he talks about in 24. The dishonorable passions. He gives, he gives a, a particular example of something that was happening during that time and still happens today. Uh, an example of dishonorable passions. He uses the example of homosexuality. He says this. He says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then he gives an example of what this means. What are dishonorable passions? Well, he says, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This is an example of dishonorable passions. That God says, I give you up to that. It's a dishonorable passion. It is against nature. I, I give you up, and we're not here to spend time talking about that and focusing on that because there's some other things coming up on the list that if that one doesn't fit you, if that one doesn't catch you, there's some that's, that are going to catch you coming up, right? So Paul says it, that, that, that's one thing on this. That's one of the consequences that he gave them up to this dishonorable passion, this thing that they were doing that displeased God. But then in 28, he says this, there's another thing he gave them up to. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to be a, deba to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. Gave them up to their troubled mind. And then in 29 through 31, he gives us a list of things. He gives us this list of things that if none of those other things uh, resonated, if we couldn't say we were guilty of anything else we've talked about up to this point. There's something on this list that all of us are guilty of. All of us are guilty of something on this list. 29 through 31, let's just talk about it. He says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. We've already talked about what that means. He says that they were evil. They were covetous. In other words, they had an appetite for things of others that belonged to others. They were malicious. They had malice, uh, ill will and vengeance. They were envious. Let's just read it first and we'll talk about it. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, ma maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, hardy, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's the list, right? And so let's talk about some of those things on that list. Uh, we've already talked about some. He says they were uh, envious in the spirit that wants not only the things that other, the other person has, but begrudges the fact that the person has them. That's what envy looks like. Murderers, that's pretty obvious what that means. They, they were people of strife, a spirit given to fighting. Have you ever met somebody that just had that kind of spirit? <laughs> just want to fight all the time. Deceit. 
They were liars. Maliciousness or malignity, a spirit so filled with evil, envy, and hatred that it loves nothing better than the destruction of another human being. Full of envy, uh, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They were gossips. I'm not, don't worry, I'm not going to park there. I'm not going to park there. Many can, many, many, many can be convicted by that. A gossip, a gossip who seeks to harm another person's reputation by being a gossiper. Slanderers who are backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, insolent, hardy, prideful. It's never a good thing to have that kind of spirit. Boasters, inventors of evil, those who create things, but they're, they're sin. Uh, Seen, they want to take their sin to new levels, so they invent new things that will cause more excitement, right? And disobedient to parents, uh, kind of like I was. <laughs> this list, this list, as I prepare to close, this list, Paul says, is, 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 a, is an example of the reasons, or the consequences, rather, of God's wrath. And, and we have to know that God we, God, we are found somewhere. All of us are guilty of something on this list. So then lastly, though, with all this bad news, with all this bad news that we've gotten from Paul in his little pause and his message on righteousness, he's, he's kind of brought us all down. He's kind of brought the readers of this letter down uh, to a place that, 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 that causes sadness and all of that. It's not a, it's not a happy happy message, not a happy part of his letter. But then I want to share with you as we prepare to go that there is good news. There is good news because of all, with all this, the wrath of God and the reasons for his wrath and the consequences of his wrath, there is a solution to the wrath. And it's found in chapter 1, verse 17. We looked at it last week and it says this, for in it, the, right, in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel. What's the gospel? We talked about it last week. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is the solution to our wrath problem. He gives us an answer. He gives us uh, a solution to our wrath problem. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 8, verse 5, when he says, but God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. To say it plainly, he took our place. It reminds me of, Bar we ought to feel like Barabbas. You remember Barabbas? Barabbas was sentenced to death, but Jesus took his place on the cross. He should have been the happiest person on all the face of the earth because Jesus stepped in and took his place. Well, he took our place too. I'm reminded of a story. Dr. Charles Allen shares a story from William Stigger about a young man named Bill who joined the Navy when World War II began. One night his ship came into Boston and he decided to visit Dr. Stigger, his former pastor and friend. During their visit together, Dr. Stigger said, Bill, tell me the most exciting experience you've had so far. Bill hesitated. It wasn't that he had trouble selecting the most exciting experience. Rather, the experience he had in mind was so wonderful and sacred that he had trouble putting it into words. Bill was the captain of a large transport that along with the convoy was making its way across the Atlantic. 
One day, an enemy submarine rose in the sea a short distance away. Bill saw a, a torpedo coming directly toward his transport, loaded with hundreds of young men. He had no time to change course. Through the loudspeaker, he shouted, boys, this is it. Nearby was a small escorting destroyer. The captain of the destroyer also saw the submarine and torpedo. Within, without a moment's hesitation, he gave the order, full speed ahead. The tiny destroyer erased, uh, eased into the path of the torpedo, taking the full impact of the deadly missile midship. The destroyer blew apart and sank quickly. Every man of the crew was lost. For a long time, Bill remained silent. Then he glanced up at his beloved pastor and said, Dr. Stigger, the skipper of that destroyer was my best friend. Again, Bill was quiet a while when he sl said slowly, you know there's a verse in scripture. The Bible says, this greater love hath no man than this, than a man will lay down his life for a friend. We were not Jesus's friends when he laid down his life for us. We were his enemies. Nevertheless, because of his perfect love, he took our place. He took our place. And because of that, we have a solution for the problem of wrath, of God's wrath. It's Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, for your will, for your will. Thank you for our solution, our answer to our situation. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you, Lord God, that he took our place on Calvary's cross. He took our place and he gave his life that we might have life. And we thank you. Lord, help us to submit to you. Help us, Lord God. Help us to please you. Help us not to anger you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.